Luke 9 and verse 28, and we'll especially at least begin thinking of verse 29, that while Christ was praying, the appearance of his face became different. We began looking at the final year of Christ's ministry, a year which we have said is one of opposition when there has been a great change in public opinion towards Christ. The Pharisees had officially rejected Christ as a teacher, as a rabbi, and his message itself, and his person. They thought he was even possessed, or a Samaritan, or a fraud. They didn't understand the things he was saying, because he wasn't behaving like their wrongful expectation of what the Christ would be like. We have all these expectations of what God is like and what Christ is like. That's natural in the heart of man. We have all these instinctive ideas. Many of them are wrong. And even as believers in a church like this, I'm sure you're aware, aware yourself that there are times where you have to sit down and even reassess what you think about God and what he's like. Because there are wrong assumptions that we're making. They were very wrong, obviously. And Jesus knew this and he began to turn towards his church. Not the visible Jewish church, but the real church, his disciples. And he began to reveal more of the essence of what he was going to do, and the essence of that message, which wasn't that he was going to defeat Rome and all of these things. But we're told around this time in all four Gospels that he began to reveal to them that he must suffer. And that's a, a biblical prophetic word there. When it says he must, it's not just saying it's going to happen. It's, it's saying that this is why he's here and he has to do this. And they don't know precisely what he's going to do. And he begins to unfold it for them. And we saw that. I must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And we saw how that turned everyone against him. The synagogue in Capernaum in which he had multiplied the bread and fed 10,000 people, it emptied on the Sabbath day. They just walked out, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who, who can take this? He's speaking about flesh and blood and sacrifice, and human sacrifice. We, this is not what we signed up for, and they leave him. And we saw in a couple of sermons that he took the disciples away to question them at Caesarea Philippi and to ascertain where they were on this question, and will they go away also? And they wouldn't go away. Peter, with all of his misunderstandings, Peter does love this man, and he knows it's not just man, he confesses, you are the Christ. Though the whole country may say you're not, you are the Christ. You are the Christ of Scripture. This is verified. I have observed you, and I know the Old Testament, and you are the Christ. And the Christ is been revealed to me, he says, the Son of God. You are God. We are interacting with God as we speak with you, and you have the words of eternal life. We saw that Jesus accepted this confession, and though Peter still didn't understand the, the suffering that would be required for the Savior and for himself, and he took Christ aside and said, this will not happen, Christ takes them further away, up a mountain, Mount Hermon, and Christ needs to pray, because at this point, he becomes aware that he must suffer. And we're told that he sets his face to Jerusalem. And any time you see that phrase, Jerusalem, in this area of the Gospel, that's what he's speaking about. It's about suffering in Jerusalem. And the church courts excommunicating him and condemning him as a blasphemer. That's what it's speaking about. It's, it's in our passage. And... Um, it says that, um, where is it, in verse 32 onwards, and that it spoke about the, the, what he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And they're not just telling us their way it will happen. It's not just a location. It's, it's the significance of that place that he's going to the city that belongs to him and that should receive him and where the temple is and all of the priesthood and everything that, that should believe in him and they're all going to surround him and bathe with his blood 
and kill him. That, that's what it means when it says they spoke to him what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So for Christ at this point, Jerusalem means that. He's about to accomplish this in Jerusalem and he is setting his face to Jerusalem. And he goes up to pray. And we saw that he prayed because he wanted communion with his father. We saw secondly that he prayed to consecrate himself and to commit and to fix his mind, heart and soul upon this task. So he tied himself to the altar as he sang last week. He tied himself as a sacrifice. As Abraham went up a mountain with his son and was going to sacrifice his son as a command of God and God used that to teach Abraham and he spared the son. Abraham looked and he saw a ram and its horns were caught in the thorn bush and the ram couldn't escape and that's exactly what Christ is doing here. He, he is thrusting his head as a, a lamb of provision for his people. He's thrusting his head into the thorn bush and he, there is no escape from it. He is setting his face to Jerusalem and as Abraham looked and said, my son does not need to die because there is a substitute so we do not need to die. We do not need to go to a lost eternity because Christ set his face to Jerusalem. This is no passing commitment. This is the Son of God saying, this is the main thing I came to do. And though they all fall away beside me and oppose me, I will do this. And he prays that through. He prays for communion with his Father. He prays to consecrate himself and the disciples sleep. That's what we saw last week. We see now what happens on this mountain. And he went up this mountain for this event. I don't believe he knew this is what was going to happen. He went up to consecrate himself. But in God's appointment, the whole point of this event is what is about to transpire here. He's not in God's will. He is not just to be up there praying as he did many times before. He always needed to seek out his Father and to be strengthened by the Spirit to oppose all sin and temptation as he did every day of his life to remain pure and holy. But here something different happens. This is one of the events in his life. This is one of the crisis moments in his life. There are a few. His baptism was one. Here we have one in the middle of his ministry. We have one in the garden of Gethsemane. We have one on the cross, and we have one as he comes out of the tomb in his resurrection, and 40 days later ascends. These are pivotal points in his life. This is no normal event, as I'm sure you're anticipating as we look at it. This is not normal. This is nothing less than, than the glory of heaven and the glory of another world, an unseen world that many of us are aware of is there. The glory of that world pierces and pours through into this world. And there's not many people there to see it. He's there with three disciples. But this is the greatest manifestation of God's glory. The only thing that compares and competes with it is Mount Sinai itself. This is no vision. This is no promise. This is nothing less than an appearance and a manifestation of another world, another plane, coming in and coming down onto the earth. That doesn't happen every day. It's not really going to happen to you and I. But it happens for Christ because of the immense pressure that he's under and the, how gargantuan the work is that he will have to do, which we can't comprehend. I said last week, God isn't encouraging him because he's going to be crucified. Many people were crucified. God is encouraging him because he's about to face the judge of all the earth. He's about to face the first person of the Trinity, the judge of all creatures, angels and men, who does not countenance sin and who exacts a perfect, weighted, proportionate punishment to what sin deserves. And Christ has accepted that he will receive punishment for millions of souls, all of his people and all who put their trust in him. He will stand in their place, and that's the reason for such a great 
manifestation is this. And uh, that glory comes down. It comes from Christ and it comes down. And we have a glimpse here of what awaits us in glory and in heaven. This is the court of heaven of the king, the majesty of God's throne room being revealed and just tearing through time and space on this mountain and flash forth for a moment so that Christ can see and we can see what that other place is like. And that, that, that makes this mountain holy. We read from Second Peter. Peter says, we were with him on the holy mount. Not Mount Sinai, not the mountains of Jerusalem, but this mountain becomes holy because of what takes place there. And before we, we see how it encourages Christ, I just want us to take stock of that, that wherever God speaks, and wherever he acts and reveals himself, it automatically makes that place a holy place. This mountain was normal. It was almost a, a Lebanese or Syrian mountain. It wasn't a special mountain. But because of this, it becomes, on this night, the greatest mountain on earth. This becomes a holy place because Christ is there and God reveals himself there. That should tell us something about this church, about our prayer closets, and ourselves if we are born again believers. That wherever Christ's glory and grace is communicated and spoken and manifested, that place becomes holy. This place this morning has become holy. This building is not holy, but this place has become holy because God is at work and because this is the place where God will reveal his word and display Christ and where he will speak. So we have to take stock of that, that we can't wander around and relax about our lives. And when we come to worship, we are coming to the holy mountain, just like the Jews did. We don't have all the, the temple and the apparatus that they have, but we could argue this is more holy, because this place, this holy place, is being bought by the blood of Christ. That is a solemn thing. And our own selves have been bought by the blood of Christ. So it's not just a place that becomes holy, but a Christian becomes holy. Why? Because a Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. What a solemn thought. Did you think of that as you came here this morning? Do you ever think of yourself that way? Or when we gather to worship? How normal we can make it. And how we sell it off cheaply. And completely underestimate the privileges and the treasure that we hold in our hands. We are a holy people if we're in Christ. And to gather together for worship is to gather and to constitute a holy place and to call on the glory of Christ to be revealed. What a marvelous thing that we have access to such treasure and such glory. So this mountain becomes holy because Christ is praying there and because of what transpires. So what does happen in this place that is becoming holy because Christ is praying through the night in the darkness as the disciples see. Well, we're told that as he prayed, verse 29, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was different. In other translations, the appearance of his face was altered. He changed physically and spiritually. He changed as he prayed. Matthew tells us he was transfigured before them. Transfigure just means that his appearance, his soul and body, his form, who he is, his figure was changed. Trans means to change, transport, you can put that word before anything in it. Transfer, it is a change. He was, his figure was transformed. He experienced a transformation as he prayed. And this was given to him as a great encouragement because of all that we've already said, the work that he'll have to accomplish. And there are several encouragements in this passage. There's an encouragement to do with what happens to him 
there is an encouragement regarding the appearance of Moses and Elijah in verse 31, and then there's an encouragement in verse 35, because of what Christ hears. These are these encouragements for him, and I want us to understand how our Lord was encouraged, and how we can be encouraged in the same way. So this change then was an encouragement to him. Remember, he's alone. The disciples aren't aware of what's happening. Christ is praying through all of these things that he's fixing his soul on. And the opposition of the Jews and the, the, the abandonment of the large group of disciples one week before. And the fact that even when he performs a miracle and tries to teach on it, the people will not understand what he's saying. And they're asking for more signs. And they're testing him. And they're filled with unbelief, ugly unbelief towards him. And he's thinking about the sin he must bear and all of these things. And what the next few months will be like for him. And how he must bear that pressure entirely alone as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And as he's praying, in the darkness, high up on Mount Hermon, possibly in the snow, but definitely at night, as he is in the middle of the season of prayer, suddenly, and it is sudden, something changes. His face begins to shine. His garment that he's wearing begins to gleam and shine with a piercing white light, the purest light that we can imagine. The Gospel writers compare it to a whiteness that exceeds the whiteness of the snow. One of the Gospel writers says that his garments began to glisten like flashes of lightning. This is a piercing pure light. This isn't yellow light. This isn't sunlight even. This is a glorious light that is coming from somewhere. And I think that it's right to say that his, his garments shine this way because it's shining from his body and soul. So it just goes through the garments and catches hold of the garments and his entire person begins to shine. Peter said in his old age, as we read, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is the majesty of God, the majesty of a king beginning to shine. Mark tells us that the, and Mark's reporting Peter's account, Mark was a disciple of Peter. He interviewed Peter in his old age. And what Peter said to Mark was that his, his clothes were whiter than any wanderer on earth could wash them. It's just an indescribable sight, an indescribable whiteness. Against the backdrop of night on this hill, as he's on his knees perhaps, perhaps even fully prostrated, praying and seeking and yearning for his father, he just becomes aware all of a sudden that bursting through the darkness that is this brightness that lights up the top of the hill. What is this light? What is this glory? It is the glory that belongs to him because of who he is. It's the glory of this person. He is the second person of the Trinity and God, triune, has glory, Father, Son, and Spirit, that is divine, immeasurable. God's glory um, can be compared to light in this world. God's glory is something that's a category we can't describe or think of. He's not physical for a start. God is spirit. But we're told he dwells in inapproachable light by Paul. He cannot be approached. Father, Son, and Spirit as divine persons in their eternity and in their divine nature, they cannot be approached. They are too bright, they are too intense. We see in Revelation that when John sees the throne, he cannot see God, really. He describes some light. He says it's like an emerald, and he describes the burning of the Spirit like fire. And he does see the Lamb. He sees Christ's human nature on the throne. He can see Christ. But he, he cannot see God, and he cannot approach God. God is glorious. He made this 
creation, this world, this universe, this massive universe with the stars, the entire cosmos, and all of the black holes, and all of the amazing beauty of the planets and their unimaginable signs, and he made that all as a mirror, as a reflection of something that's true of him. We see that we can see the glory of these things, and they are imposing and unimaginable to us, and we're in awe of them. But we cannot see God's glory. We can see a, a, a mirror reflection of it in some way. But not God. He's unapproachable. So no man can see me and live, the Lord says. So what we see here is not that light. It is not the glorious, eternal, divine light which we cannot touch or our eyes, our eyes cannot pick up or even handle. But what we see here is that Christ came from the Trinity, took upon himself a human soul, a human nature, as a person, and he is still the eternal Son in heaven, but we see him here located on the earth as well. He's in two places. Christ is simultaneously the divine Son. He is eternal and burns up sin, and he's unapproachable. And his glory would unravel our beings if we saw it. But he's also here on the earth in his humiliation. And he's both, both of these, we don't even know what to say, both of these locations are truly him. That's the mystery of the incarnation. He is both fully present there and truly present as a man. He is the God-man. He is, he says to Nicodemus, no man has seen God except the Son of Man, who is in heaven. Christ said he was in two places at once. That's how we understand that. I know that's difficult, friends. I find it difficult. But um, he has a glorious God that is imposing and intangible. But he also has a glory as the Son of God and as, as he's here on this mountain. And what that glory he has, because if you ask him, who are you? He says, I am the Son. The, I am the eternal Son of God. But I'm bound now by this human nature. That glory he has is hidden for most of his life. It's hidden at his birth. It's hidden throughout his childhood and teenage years. God hid it on purpose. He was to be a man of sorrows. He was to be in a state of humiliation. He was to have no advantage over us as he fulfilled the law, as he, uh, as he pleased God on our behalf, and he wove our righteousness together to give to us. He had no advantage over us. He, as I said last week, he prayed and relied on God in the same way we do. That was hidden. It wasn't visible. But it is his. It's only right that he has it. You cannot be the second person of the Trinity or the king of all things and not have this glory. Every king has his glory. Solomon has his glory. All of the Egyptian pharaohs have their glory. Maybe even the American president has some kind of glory. I don't know. But this person has a glory that's hidden and what happens here is it's revealed. And he needs that. That's the point. He needs to see it. He can be tempted. He can look at the, the hole he must plunge into. And as he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If it is possible, take it from me. He is in this immense pressure. He can see what this means to him. And his people have rejected him. He came to his own and his own received him not. His disciples are asleep. He needs some kind of communication from God to fill his soul with strength and might and assurance that this is who he is and this is what he will do. And we know it's on his mind because we have a record of him praying for it. In John 17, as he's in the upper room with the disciples, he prays for this glory. Father, now I come to you. Glorify me now, together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. When Christ was preparing in the upper room for the cross, he, um, his only focus was not to purge our sins. 
and to die for us. He had a, an intimate desire that was just for himself, but he wasn't only doing that for us. He, he looked to the reward that would be given to him, that was rightfully his and promised to him in the prophets and Psalms. The Messiah has promised this, that if you do this, you will receive glory and a kingdom that is eternal, and a people and a bride and a wife who you love, the bride, the people of God. And as he looks at that in the upper room, he prays, Lord, I am the Son of God, and I am shrouded in weakness and, and covered with the meanness of a human life in a sinful world. And though I bear it for 33 years, I long to see and experience the glory that is rightfully mine. For I am not just a man. And it's not, it's not right for us to think of Christ being satisfied with just being a man in his humiliation. It's so unnatural for him. He, he longs for a manifestation of his glory. And God gives it to him. This surely encourages and strengthens Christ. And he sees this is who I am. He, he looks as he's praying, and he's aware that the, the hill is lit up, and he can, he can see the light streaming from his face, and he looks at his hands and his clothes, and he is gleaming and glowing with an immense and beautiful, holy light, and he sees that glory that he longs to see. This surely encouraged our Lord in the midst of all that opposition and all that was facing him. This surely, as he looked and he saw that he, just who he is, can light up the top of an entire mountain. And as he knows that his glory was revealed in the Old Testament so many times to Moses and these people, but this time it's not being revealed to him, it's coming from him. Surely. This was a great strength to Christ. And as he looked, he would have been reassured, not just that he knows he's the Son of God, but that he's experiencing that. It's not just, he never doubted it, obviously, but when he looks at himself, he doesn't need to say anymore, in spite of the way I am, I believe that I will do this, and I believe that I have a glory. There's a difference between believing a promise of God and actually experiencing it. So he, he's experiencing something that he knew his whole life, but it's so different. It's different to be told that you have all this. It's another thing to bathe in and bask in and enjoy it. And that's what strengthens Christ. And it strengthens us too. This isn't just for him. We see the glory of him here and the same thing applies to us. There is a big difference between reading the scripture and seeing promises about what we are, my sins are forgiven. I will be kept through suffering and death. I will be translated into heaven. I will live on the new heavens and the new earth. I'm sure every believer here believes that, even though sometimes it's doubted. But our belief in it, even when it's strong, it Doubt arises so naturally in the heart the moment that you even begin to believe a promise. What a difference it is for us to accept that something's going to happen and for us to actually experience it. And that's not just true of heaven and these things. That happens in our lives that there are things that God has promised us. There are things that we believe that God has promised us and that we expect to happen. There are situations in which we expect certain things to work out in a certain way. And it's one thing for us to say, I believe this will happen and I trust God. Completely different thing when it actually happens. And just as we leave Christ being glorified here, it's worth saying that um, we ought to be able to see his glory even this morning and in our Christian lives. Now, we will not see it precisely like this, of course, we won't, but we have to um, be, we have to 
We have to be careful in our Christian lives that we don't become satisfied with not seeing God's glory, or hearing God's voice, or being aware of the immensity of God, because it is certain that that's not present in our lives all the time, and it's certainly not present in the current era of church history. Our, our parents in the faith, way back, throughout God's great work throughout the world, there, there have been times where God has revealed himself. He didn't shine like this visibly, but there were times where people prayed like Christ did here, and God came near, and he converted thousands and hundreds of thousands. He made people aware in their souls of his weight and his tangible presence, so that they trembled and feared before him, and were enraptured with his grace and love. One such person is Jonathan Edwards, who was went for a few days' wreck on his horse to focus on the Lord and to think about the Lord, and he, he had to come off his horse and went into a forest to be alone with God. And he wrote in his diary that he was overcome with such a sense of the wonder and the beauty and the love of Christ that he felt his being was going to unravel, that he was just overwhelmed, and he wept and wept, and he, he was not one to, uh, to be like that. This was something that happened to him, and we shouldn't consign that to him. History books. I mean, I, I've, I've said many times from this pulpit. I mean, is, is God in this place or not? Is God in this church or not? Is God in my life or in your life? But if He is, there ought to be times where, rather than us just believing what the Bible says about worship, i.e., the Bible says God is here, and the Bible says my sins are forgiven. And the Bible says that my prayers are heard. And the Bible says that I'm serving him and that I'm a good and faithful servant. Or the Bible says he will bless my children. There's one, it's one thing for the Bible to say it. It's another thing for us to taste it and experience it. It's one thing to say, I know in my mind my sins are forgiven. And to be hard-hearted about that. It's another thing to be on your knees in prayer because you put work and time into that prayer and for God to give you a true sense that your sins are really forgiven and none of them can condemn you and give you a sense of his love. It's one thing to say the Bible loves Christians. It's another thing for a Christian to be filled with a sense of that love. So let's, let's be careful with that, that we don't in our unbelief and our lack of desire for God to interact with us, that we just say, well, the Bible says I have all these things, so that's that. That's not the way it works. Christ knew he had a glory, but it was a completely different thing when God revealed it to him. So, the glory encourages him. Another thing encourages him, and that is the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Verse 30, Behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah. The disciples are still asleep. As Christ becomes aware of this glory, it comes to stages. As he basks in it and begins to think of the implications on it, he sees two men who appear from the other side. And I think they're glorified here. I think this isn't a, a spirit appearance. And um, this is actually Moses and actually Elijah in their glorified state. Elijah um, didn't die. Eli Elisha saw him being translated into heaven with a, a, a chariot of fire and glory as God showed his resurrection power that the, the Christian does not need to die. The Christian does not need to be held by death. And he can take death out of Elijah's chain of events just like that. Elijah went straight from being a justified, saved Christian straight into a glorified state in heaven. So Elijah has been in heaven since that day with his body. Heaven is a physical place. Maybe we can discuss that some other time if we can sit together and discuss it. Heaven, is, heaven isn't this indistinct, floaty, cloudy place. The Bible never says that. It is a place. Christ is there in his body. Elijah is there in his body. And I believe Moses is there in his body too. That 
when Moses died, were told strangely that God buried him. It wasn't the Israelites that buried him. Moses went away alone to die. And he died on his own because God didn't want the Jews to have his body. They probably would have encased it or, or worshipped it because, because of who he was. And we're told that he went away alone and he died on Mount Nemo alone. And it, we're told strangely the Lord buried him. And I, I think the Lord there is Christ. In an Old Testament appearance of Christ, that he comes from glory and he either buries Moses or does something with his body. I don't want to become too, um, get into too many strange doctrines here, but the Bible has some strange things it says. And at the end of the Bible, in the book of Jude, we're told that Michael, the archangel, and Satan had a dispute over Moses' body. So you, you check that, the second last book of the Bible, Jude just strangely tells us that the archangel Michael and Satan disputed over the body of Moses. And I wonder what that means, but one thing it could mean is that God protected his body and even brought it to glory and glorified it like Elijah's. These men, be that as it may, these men appear. They appear in glory ever told. Verse 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So Christ doesn't just see his own glory, he sees these two glorified Christians and they speak to him. They speak to him and that is the encouragement that Christ receives. They speak to him about his departure or his decease. Sometimes the word means die and depart. And I told you last week that the word is exodus. They spoke to him of his exodus. So it's something to do with the exodus, and also something to do with Christ exiting this world. The Jews had their exodus, and Christ was going to have his own. Uh, Moses had his. He was in the exodus. Elijah, I just told you what his exodus was. His exodus was to be taken by God, and in glory brought up into that place. So we all have a decease, a departure, an exodus that we have to reckon with. We will all die. And here they speak about his decease. And he needs that. He needs that. I don't have time to go into again him, all that's going through his mind. But how, how awful and difficult it must be for him to, to consider these things and to think about them as he anticipates what's coming to him. And God seems fit to encourage him. It's an amazing thing that Christ is not um, insensitive and he is a stoic figure that is untouched by human emotion and these things. God actually sends two other men to have a conversation with Christ. And they speak to him about that. Moses could have a lot to say about the Exodus and the land being slain about the parting of the Red Sea, about him seeing the glory of God on Sinai, and how God faithfully took the nation through for 40 years in the wilderness, and many times Moses thought they were going to be destroyed, and that they were going to fail, and eventually God was faithful and brought them in to the promised land. Moses can, can say that to Christ. Elijah can say, I, I, I went straight to glory. I have experienced that too, and the opposition you're experiencing. I, I was victorious over the prophets of Baal, and I showed the power of God, but the nation still turned against me. And Jezebel tried to have me killed, and I was so discouraged that I went up a mountain, I walked for 40 days and 40 nights up Mount Sinai, and I ran out of food, and God sustained me. I asked God to take my life because the weight was too great to bear. And I went up on that mountain and God revealed himself to me. So you begin to see, these are two really appropriate people to be able to discuss these things with the Lord. They both experienced them themselves. Not only that, but they, they can speak to them about where they've just come from. Not just the death, but the place that they don't need to believe in because they've been there. They don't need to believe because they know it. They're there in glory. They've seen the glory of God. They've seen all of the saints being brought into that place. 
they've seen all of these things being saved through death as they see heaven populated more and more each day as Moses and Elijah are there for thousands of years and they, they see the, the, the spaces in heaven fill up as the city grows and grows and they see these people who the Lord has kept what an encouragement to Christ the disciples can't give that to them no one can give that to them but God brings these two men to give it to Christ at this crucial point so his death and even the exodus on, on heaven but there's one last thing about that that encourages Christ and that's that the glory that these two men have they're shining to the glory that they have is actually the result of what Christ is going to do and I think that's the main reason God sent them they are appearing as complete washed justified sanctified and now glorified sinners they're pure their souls have been made perfect they image forth the glory that has been given to them and all their sins have been detached from them and they're being treated by God as sinless that is a reward and a result of the cross it's the cross it's the cross that achieved all of that and Christ is able to see this night the result of something he hasn't even done yet because in God's will it's done Adam and Eve were saved by the cross Abraham was saved because of Christ's ministry it, Moses was saved because Christ bore the temptation in Gethsemane when the forces of hell were trying to obliterate him Daniel was justified because Christ paid for his sin on the cross so we have we have this thing here of um, the effect of what Christ has done is going back to the beginning of time and it's going forward to the very last believer because when God's unfolding his covenant and he makes atonement for sin it's eternal it's, it's not in time like that the Jews weren't saved in a different way than we are the transaction of God was done with God's eternal view in mind he showed mercy to Adam in the garden because of what Christ did in the garden of Gethsemane and what he did on that hill and that's a wonderful thing for Christ to see that he can look at these men as a guarantee not as something he needs to believe might happen but he can actually reach out and touch the results of something that he's just said in his soul that he must do and God gives him a down payment a preview as we get in life too there are many things that are God gives us a taste of something that's going to be finished he gives us a taste in our ministry or in our families or in our work and all of these things and if we are following God and we are in need of encouragement and we're asking him for it he drops in these previews he lets us know that the outcome is going to be a certain way he lets us know that we are safe and that his love is for us and we can see something of how the situation will pan out and that it is secure he does this here to Christ what an amazing thing for our Lord to see him I can't apply this to you I just want us to be glad and rejoice in the happiness of our Lord at this moment and, and to share with him in it because he um, as he looks from this hill he can see with assurance that everyone who he's read about in the scripture that was supposed to be saved they are saved and they're in glory and he can look forward from the cross to the men who are asleep and further forward right through to our time in our lives to the very last believer whenever the Lord will return in a hundred years or in ten years that the very last believer that God is going to save they are all bound together in one security and Christ can see it from this mountain that everyone's salvation in Christ is guaranteed so maybe I can apply that if you're 
if you doubt, I mean, if you're worried about your physical condition and the suffering and the process of passing from this world, if you're worried that your sin may sever you from God, that's a good worry to have. But you, you also must see the commitment of his love to you. If you're looking and your life is a mess and things aren't working and you can tell that you're out of step with God and you think he might never come back, yes, you should be concerned about that. And test and examine yourself to make sure you're a real born-again believer. But the truth here is that all of us are as secure as Moses and Elijah. That when I stand here, even with my sins, that I can be sure of the justification of God and his cleansing power and that at some point soon I don't need to wonder and worry if glorification is real I don't need to go through that thought process because here it is this is exactly what will happen to me if I love Christ and I am a submissive and born again sin cleansed Christian this is exactly what will happen to me and exactly what will happen to you. Why? We obviously don't give this enough thought at all. But this is what awaits us, friends. I wanted to say something about the, the words of the Father, but I'm planning on preaching on the Transfiguration again next week, and I think I can feed that in there. I just want to leave you with these thoughts for you to remember that as Christ prayed, he needed encouragement and this immense glory was shown to him. And it strengthened him and showed him exactly who he was and we must know this morning who he is and try and endeavor and thirst for a sight and sense of that very glory even in our church services. To see that piercing light spiritually going through us all. And that these men were sent to encourage the Lord because of what they'd been through. And that they spoke to him about his death and what that would mean. And that they could speak to him about heaven. And that they were guarantees to him of what awaits him and the reward that awaits him. And I would just ask you um, in closing. To test yourself. And I'll test myself. It's very unlikely that we're all spiritually healthy. Very unlikely because of the day and age we live in. When we come to read passages like this and we interact with truths like this and we are told by God that if we are believers that we, this glory awaits us at the point of death and that we will be given a glorified body, and we will shine like the sun, and we will be exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to test ourselves whether that is a reality in our souls, not something we think, not something we, in a, in a uh, superficial way, accept, not something that we think we believe. We have to test ourselves in the day that we live in, and we need to ask ourselves, are these the things that I think about? Are these the things that I desire? Is this my pursuit? Is he my chiefest joy? Is this the joy that is set before me as it was for Jesus so that I endure the cross and despise the shame and sit down at the right hand of God? These are just basic, realistic questions that men and women must ask themselves. Is this what I live for? Is this what I long for? Does this light and glory and does this person capture all my affections? And am I looking to this and nothing else as the definition of my life? Because friends, if we are not pursuing this, and if we are not praying and going up the mountain with Christ, and if we are not like Moses and Elijah in their heart and love and affections, then we will never see this glory. And when the glory disappears, as it will, we'll see next week, as it disappears, then the mountain will again be shrouded in darkness, and we may never see that glory again. In fact, Christ says, 
that when, if we die without this, we will be in eternal and outer darkness. And we will never see light and beauty and love again. Let us test ourselves by this. Are we drawn to the light, or are we in darkness? Amen. May the Lord bless his gracious word to our souls. Let's remain seated for a moment while we pray and then we'll sing. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that we would have that light. We pray that we would see him in this life. For he could be seen today if we would but seek him. And he, he is willing to be found. And he is willing to be in communion with us. And help us to have a case even this morning. That although he appeared this way for Peter and James and John, help us to have a taste of the fact that he can appear in our own experience when we are alone up on the mountain to see him, that he can make us aware of his glory, that he can make us aware of his judgment and of his blessing and of his love, of his displeasure and of his grace of his support and of his tender and compassionate love. Make us people who hear the word and that as we hear it our souls would be enamored and alive as hearing from our husband. Lord, make us a people that do not believe things in our head, but make us a people who take the truth and who run to find Christ with the truth. That we would be a people who experience the presence of God in our souls. Even this day, change us into those people as temples of the living God as filled with divine glory as ones who can see the unseen O God, make it so push over our stubbornness our lack of desire and all of the things that are obstacles in our souls from this reality. O Lord, in your love and grace, even force us to be these kinds of people. Make us followers of him. In his great name we pray. Amen.